All right, welcome to uh, a special show. Today is uh, Christmas Eve. So some of you celebrate Christmas, some of you don't. I'm not really religious, who cares? It's still Christmas for some people, half the world or whatever. So uh, I think, you know, people ask me a lot, by the way, and I didn't know if I want to get into this on today's show. People ask me what I think about religion and things like that. Uh, I steer away from religion and politics somewhat. And it's not for the reason that people think. But before I jump into that, let me say for today's show, I got something special um, that is so important for you to understand. If you get this one right, you'll be different than 99% of the world. And I mean different in a positive way. Most of the world is lost, especially when it comes to finances. If you don't believe me, just look at the statistics, right? People spend 12% of their life on average doing what they like financially or career-wise. Uh, you know, globally, whatever, it's something like half the world is still uh, goes to bed hungry. Um, all these problems that we are, are faced with on a holiday like this, right? Maybe you feel guilty, you've got all these gifts coming in, and then it's like, yeah, but what about all the other people starving and, and uh, in need? And so, you know what'll change the world more than any other single cause? What will change the world will not be a new governmental system. It will not be a new president, prime minister, king, or queen. Prime ministers and presidents are generally reflections of the time. They may do some good and have some impact, but it's not that. That changes the world. It's people in mass. So large groups of people, we congregate in these things called countries. It's still composed of the overall quality of the individual parts. If you have a fancy car, on the outside shows Lamborghini or Ferrari, but the individual parts of the engine making up that car or driving that car are weak. It's not a Lamborghini. I had a friend, funny, took a car, uh, like a, a cheap car, I forget what brand it was, and took a Ferrari uh, little horse and put it on... And he said, man, I can go out on dates and girls, he said, most girls don't know anything about cars, so they think I have a Ferrari. And at, what's the saying go? A horse is a horse by any other name or a rose is a rose, whatever. Just by changing the name or changing the exterior, you don't change anything of, uh, of significance. So people want to change the world through, um, I don't know, the wrong thing. You know what will change the world? These things to the right and left of me. Books. Not because they're books, but because ideas recycled through your brain, recycled through my brain, changing instincts. Remember, books alone only create thought. In and of itself, a book is worthless. Only if it changes instincts. Instincts, instinct. As I talked about Confucius continually or, or uh, I wouldn't say harped on the point, but he made the point very clear. 
to change the world, you have to change the country. To change the country, you have to change the, the leaders. To change the leaders, you have to change the families that that leader grew up in. To change the family, you have to change the father and mother. To change the father and mother, you have to change, uh, he said, the hearts of those fathers and mothers. But he said, interesting, because he did the order differently than you think. He said, in order to change the heart, you have to change the mind. And he said, in order to change the mind, you have to change curiosity. So you're watching this show, whether you're watching live, listening in later, or watching a later replay. It's My goal here is not to get on camera. I've never needed that. I mean, that's, that's why some people go, oh, Ty, I haven't, you know, I haven't heard of you because yeah, I was just doing my own thing, living life, being a businessman. My goal has never been to be, you know, I was born in L.A., but I never want to be a Hollywood actor or something like that. But I do see uh, that there is a need to, for you and I, hopefully I'm not doing this alone, to invigorate the curiosity that uh, is at an apathetic low in the world. That's what the books can do. Because in the books, you will find the stories of the reward. Remember this. You want to change yourself? One of the more popular subjects I talk about is persuasion, uh, motivation. I'm not a rah-rah self-help motivator. If you need that, there's guys that and women that do that, that get on stage and jump around and have you jump around with them. And some of that stuff's cool. I've been to some of those events. And uh, Tony Robbins is a little bit like that. And I, li I like it. I'm not a hater. Uh, but that's not what I do. So you can't. If you need, That's why I sit in a chair. <laughs> not because I really have to sit in a chair. But because sitting in a chair represents taking ideas, having them flow through your brain into a instinctual change. Now, today, what I want to talk about that creates an instinctual change is based off, uh, like I said, it's Christmas, and so I, I want to talk about uh, the Bible. Again, I'm not really, I'm not coming out from a standpoint of preaching or anything like that, because I did grow up in some, I grew up in different, my mom went through different stages. I grew up around atheists when I was very young. I was baptized Catholic by my dad, but then never went did much Catholic stuff. Then I went and lived with my atheist grandparents. Then my mom went through different stages as she was raising me as a single mom and Christian and different types of Christianity. I lived with the Amish. I lived Joel Salatin's more conservative kind of Baptist kind of thing. Uh, the Amish are very conservative Christians. They're kind of like what Christians were in the 1800s. My mom became a hippie at one point. So new age. So so I've been around. I haven't tried every religion necessarily, but uh, religion is a powerful force, and there's a lot of reasons why. And the reason I don't always talk about religion and politics is because what's my end goal? You see, you gotta go. What's your end goal? My end goal is to change my instincts through good ideas, and hopefully have a couple people tag along with me with the end goal of finding the good life. Me debating the merits of Islam, Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, and Hinduism 
does not necessarily forward that that end goal, forward me to that end goal, or even you, because it's too there's too much static interference in those conversations. We defend as a a good there's a Tilson fund that's like a mutual fund hedge fund kind of thing. They wrote they published a Harvard speech by Charlie Munger and he says, beware of the uh, our lack or our hatred of cognitive dissonance, meaning when we don't know something, we will do our best to come up with an answer. And so, and he said, we hold on to those answers, especially if they were hard fought. So if you had some diet and you almost died and then this diet saved your life, you're going to extrapolate the, you don't want the cognitive dissonance that says, is there a good diet out there? What is it? No. As I talked about in the book, diet cults, humans go, ooh, 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 my diet is the best for every body type, even though we know this is nonsense. You're not going to find one diet that works for everybody. You might find some principles like drink water, eat sleep, drink vegetables that seem to be pretty universal, but you will have a hard time. There's people who are allergic to fruit. One piece of fruit kills them. Fructose intolerance. Dr. Sean Molum talks about it. There's people that dairy kills them, and I guarantee you there's people that thrive with dairy. People sometimes say, oh, humans are the only animal that drinks the milk of other humans. This is not a good argument. I can't believe this argument's still circulating around. Did you know every piece of meat, fruit, vegetable, seed, nut, dairy product was not created for the purpose of humans eating it. A seed, when you eat corn on the cob, corn on the cob, the corn seeds exist, it's seed to create new corn. So the corn plant creates corn to generate new life, not to feed humans, but we hijack that and eat it for nutrients. So the same thing with milk, the same thing with meat. Now some of you, We'll do better with no meat or milk. We know this, but not everybody. But you see, we like to extrapolate our ideas into extreme ideologies. But I believe rarely is the accurate assessment of a situation found in extremes. So if I was to today on this Christmas show talk too much about religion, it would start pinging on the the hatred of cognitive dissonance of millions of people or thousands of people who watch this show and listen in. And what happens is then, you ever been in driving in a car and you're trying to listen to one song and then static uh, static, uh, signals come in and the sound, instead of hearing the song, it's like and you turn it off immediately because you don't want to hear it. Well, that would be the same thing if I got into the exact merits But I'll tell you what I do believe about religion is that there's extreme ideologies that discount the knowledge and wisdom and truth in many religions. And if you fall prey to that, like I say, you know, check yourself before you wreck yourself. It's an old hip hop saying (laughs) that I always thought was funny. I'm like, hey. You're lost if that's how you see life. I can tell you that. I I don't want to go into why I think you're lost, but trust me, you are. So today, 
with that long preamble to what I'm going to talk about, there's a saying. So let me pull this up here. Uh, in the in the Old Testament of the Bible, so Christians, Jewish people, and Muslims all would share this kind of uh, thought or share this passage, belief in this passage. The borrower is the slave of the lender. Proverbs 22, 7. The borrower is the slave of the lender. Memorize that saying. If you are completely a borrower, you are completely a slave. Now, that's obviously an oversimplification. There's times where people have thrived under debt. Uh, Sam Walton built the whole empire of uh, Walmart into the richest and wealthiest business empire of all. And he did it primarily through debt. I read he uh, wasn't really out of debt till he was about 50, in his late 50s, 57, I think. So certainly, uh, Donald Trump did the same thing. Real estate empires are usually built around leveraging debt. So I want to talk about there's a certain type of debt and a certain mentality where you go from harnessing the power of leverage, which I believe there is a power to leverage. I don't want you to interpret, th interpret this show as you saying, oh, I should not even ever be in debt. I should never have a credit card. I should never have a home loan. In fact, I had someone in my family that took that extreme ideology. They oversimplified uh, based somewhat on passages like this. Uh, and they regret it later because it was a, it, I, I showed them on a pen with a pen and paper and a calculator how they were misjudging the situation. So first lesson is when it comes to the subject of finances and debt, don't oversimplify. Do you know why people oversimplify? That's why I did the preamble, the pre-talk to this whole point. Because we do not like cognitive dissonance. So we don't want an open-ended answer. You know, think about it. Let's say you ever dated somebody or you're a little kid and there's a girl or a guy in your class that you were interested in. Remember you like write people kids write little notes. Do you like me? Yes, no. It's just like a checkbox. But you know, human attraction is nuanced. You can get in relationships with friends, business partners, family, love, where it's a uh, romance, where there's a love-hate relationship going on. Uh, and your cognitive dissonance wants to go, wants to remove that doubt, wants to be like, oh, oh, no, no, they love me. Oh, they absolutely hate me. Well, the world is full of gray areas. That's the first mark of a refined mind, the acceptance of of gray areas and things we don't understand. There are probably, and I think most people would agree, some moral absolutes, you know, throughout time, throughout history, throughout cultures, there are some things all people groups have generally tended to uh, agree on. You can Google those. There's a list of interesting ones that seem to pass the test of time, and, and there's certainly many others that pass the test of most cultures. But, uh, when it comes to debt and your finance, it is true. The average person in the U.S. right now is about $225,000 in debt. 15000 of that is credit card debt at interest rates of maybe 15% relatively high. And most 
consumer debt, like credit card debt, unless it's for business purposes, is not tax deductible. Uh, 147,000 is the average debt on a house. And 31,000, this is gonna blow your mind, $31,000 on student loans. Don't get me started on education system like that. There's something wrong. I, you know, the way to look at college education debt is just like, let's say, a guy like Peter Thiel. Where is his book here? I don't know. I have it somewhere. Look at it like an investor. Good investors look for what's called 10x returns within reasonable time frames. So it can't be over like 40 years. So you as an investor of your time and money, if you're deciding whether to do formal education or to buy a car or a house, buy something that has a 10x return in let's say 10 years. Meaning, your college degree that leaves you with 30, well, even if it leaves you with 30,000 in debt, you probably paid more because you had other things you had to do, but let's say, let's say 40 grand. Make sure you think in the next 10 years, you will net, net by the way, an extra 10 times that, $400,000 in your bank account. If you don't see that math happening in the next 10 years, not over your whole career, good investors don't go, oh, I want a 10X in 38 years. And a lot of times when you see the math on things like college, they're looking at over a lifetime. That's too long. You got to look over a lifetime, you have inflation, which means the devaluing of the money. So maybe you make an extra million bucks, but if you do it over 40 or 50 years at three to 4% interest or cost of goods going up, it's not as much as you think. It's only 200,000 extra real increase in the money that you retain, the spending and buying power. So you got to look at it at shorter time frames. Y'all should don't know if you're going to live 40 years. 50 years. Life is short. As Seneca says, in our fears, we act as if we're mortal. And in our desires, we act as if we're immortal. That's a mistake, he's saying. So when you buy a car, this is because this is the next thing. The average person in the United States or the average family owns 30,000 or owes in debt $30,738 on their car. Well, cars don't follow what I call, what I teach as the RRD rule. Never invested things that rust rot and depreciate, or at least minimize your investments in things that are RRD, rust rot and depreciate. You buy a new pair of shoes, it does not follow the 10X investor rule in 10 years. Those pair of shoes are not worth 10 times what you paid for them over the next 10 years. No, they're worth ever diminishing almost to zero value. Now, of course, they cover your feet and they protect you from... I was talking to a guy who said he, he was on a farm working with this guy who was kind of a hippie who decided he was never going to wear shoes. And they went to cut down trees in the woods and this guy went barefoot and uh, he ended up... I don't know if he ended up in the hospital, but you do need to protect your feet put it that way. That's what that guy learned after trying to go barefoot in the woods through the brambles and briars. So shoes are okay, but if you could wear flip-flops that you get free and then you could take the money 
the couple hundred bucks. I mean, women's shoes, good grief. Sometimes I'm like, I should be in that business. That shoe, pair of shoes costs them 50 bucks. They sell them for $500. And people buy them as if they're freaking gold coins. It's, I mean, people like, you see in like a Nordstrom's, it's just like, people, oh, shoes. Now, I don't want to disparage nice things because I think it's okay to have some selfish goals. I think, you know, guys like, I like fancy car, fast cars, stupid stuff like that. Guys like electronic, not, not even to, shouldn't make this a gender thing. Some people like it. Some people like shoes because there's definitely guys that like shoes. Amelda Marcos type people on the planet. Um, so the main takeaway is not whether you're buying RRD items, restaurant depreciating. It's are you buying them out of surplus? So are you so financially independent that you splurge as a celebration of the prosperity financially your experience? Because then it's fine. I believe, you know, you have to have in the cycle of life, the winter is the hardships. I got contacted by somebody who's in uh, the business program that I teach, the business mentorship. And he's like, hey, you know, an employee died. One of my key employees died in my business. Uh, I was planning to take off Christmas and go and do what you say, Ty, go lock myself, or what Bill Gates says too, you know, go for a week, take a whole bunch of books, have a thought vacation. And he's like, I was going to plan the year, the upcoming year and do all this. And he's like, this person died and revenue dropped in one of my businesses. And I got to go back in the trenches. And I said, hey, when that day and that phone call comes, that rainy day, that's the winter of your life. And appreciate the winter. And then move. I told him, well, don't go on the vacation as much. You got to go into the spring and summer. Spring is where you plant seeds and experiment with new things. And the summer is where you put in the hard work to bring those seeds to fruition. And the fall is when you celebrate. See, he had decided on his terms now celebration, rest and relaxation are our time. You can't always dictate the seasons that you have. So if though you go through the you went have been through the winter, you have planted seeds of experiments in the spring, you have pushed them through and done the tests and observations and iterated over and over in the summer, and now it's the fall of your life, then go buy the shoes, go buy the Lamborghini. Uh, of course, I hope you do other things too besides that. I hope you, you know, give back and share and all that. But you can do some selfish. Why not? I don't see uh, anything wrong with that. And so buying the shoes, the restaurant and depreciating items out of scarcity, though, is a fool's game. Right? Where the flip-flops. Be like Joel Salatin. My mentor told me, Ty, I slept in the attic of my house, of my parents' house for the first eight years when I married my wife, Teresa, so that I, we lived on a $100 a month budget and we took all the rest of the money and we saved it. We grew our own garden. We grew our own food. And out of that came a world-changing idea and business and farm and everything uh, that you want in life came from that. It's a great uh, tweet that I posted. I actually retweeted somebody. Thank you. 
all of you who post good stuff. I, I love it. And there was a speech here that says, uh, by Sigmund Freud, one day in retrospect, the years of struggle will strike you as the most beautiful. Now, notice the precision of words here. The years of struggle will strike you as the most beautiful. Here are two types of struggle. There's one type of struggle that will not strike you as beautiful. There is a way to thrive even in this struggle. And there is number two, which you don't want, the apathetic struggle. So remember Thoreau, that quote that I give? The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. What is called resignation is confirmed desperation. So if you find yourself in the winter of your life, whether it's with your body, health-wise, physical, or it's with money, wealth, or it's with love, with friends, family, and romance, or whether it's your personal happiness and what's going on emotionally in your mind, uh, if you find yourself in the winter and you've resigned yourself to stay there, resignation is actually confirmed desperation. And Freud was not saying in retrospect, the years of your apathy will strike you as the most beautiful. No, the years of apathy where you wallow and stay in an experiment or in a situation that should have just been run as an experiment but you resign yourself. Uh, famous set of research done, which now is considered unethical, but they were able to do it, where they started shocking dogs, and they put dogs in a cage, and it wasn't super strong shocks, but it wasn't the nicest experiment, and they shocked these dogs, but the dogs could not get out of the box. They were completely penned in, and what they found is the dogs at first would try to claw their way out. See, the dogs at first were not apathetic, but then, once they realized or felt that they were in a helpless box, couldn't get out, no matter what they tried, they just laid down and took the shocks. Bzz. The interesting thing, and it shows our psychology, because humans, one of the cognitive biases in our brain that cause us to make misjudgments and mistakes in our decision-making processes is called Pavlovian response, which that was a negative Pavlovian response, right? the shock and you'll see why because they took those dogs they took them out of like uh, little pens that were covered and they put them in just a box so it had three sides but the dog could easily have jumped out of the box they shocked the dogs but the dogs that had been conditioned and this is an experiment on what's called learned helplessness the dogs that were shocked began to lay down even though they could have gotten out they were desperate that's confirmed desperation, their resignation. Martin Seligman talks about in this in his book, uh, Learned Optimism, I think, or something along those lines, the famous psychologist, right? So uh, for you and I, the years of struggle that you were climbing out of the box will look as beautiful, will look beautiful to you. The years that you look back and find yourself having resigned yourself to the station in which you are today or were at that time will not strike you as beautiful. Those will be what we call regrets. Those will be intense pain. Those will bring you to the place like Chief Tecumseh said, when it comes to your time to die, do not be like those who cry and weep and ask for a little bit more time to live their life over again. 
That's what most of the world is headed towards, unfortunately, but most people are headed towards. They have forgotten about the optimism that through the winter's clouds comes often and almost inevitably the spring. If you can survive it, as Nietzsche said, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I'm not sure I completely agree with what he's saying, but the gist of it, I agree. So when it comes to finances, specifically, if you are struggling financially, I can diagnose it in the same way that my mentors diagnosed my problem when I had $47 in my bank account and I was sleeping on a couch in a mobile home in Clayton, North Carolina. That wasn't so long ago. So I, I've been through, and I'm sure I'll continue to go through the cycles uh, if I live long enough. There is no winning and there is no losing except resignation. You see that in the dogs. The dogs, once they decided to lay down at every shock, they had lost the game. That's losing. So let me just give you this simple kind of uh, way to look at life. It's a reframing. And the way you frame your life, just like those dogs, the second they had framed themselves as we can't get out of the box when we're being shocked, they no longer attempted and they created a dungeon of their own making that wasn't real. That's the mass of humanity. You can see it if you don't believe me. Go out to dinner or maybe this holiday while you're out with family. Listen to the conversations because inevitably around the, the table, somebody in the family will start lamenting the economy. You, or no, when it comes to debt, as what we're talking about today, people will start lamenting uh, the banks. It's the banks and the credit card companies. See, the credit card companies, or it's the universities. See, they're putting us debt, or there's the government that's not giving us free education. Blah, blah, blah. That is confirmed desperation in the form of resigning yourself. Once you blame it on the government, or to credit card companies, can you change the credit card company? You think you can storm the gates of credit card companies and say, you're charging 28% interest. I am a crusader for the rights of man and I think it should be 12%. You know what works better? Showing people how to thrive so they don't get in so much credit card debt. No one forces people to go into credit card debt. Now I know there's extreme situations, I know there's maybe unethical things that happen here and there. It, it, I'm just saying, this is out of your control. Like The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey, he talks about, do the things in your control. And that's what uh, Benjamin Franklin talks about in, the, in his book, a little pamphlet, The Way to Wealth. He says, well, while people are complaining about the things they can't change, all the taxes and this, ask them, well, when's the last time you read a book on finances? Did you wake up at five this morning? That was in your power. And before you went to work, do a workout on your brain when it comes to finances. Did you read what Warren Buffett says about money? Did you read what Benjamin Graham said about money? Have you read the book, uh, A Few Lessons for Manager, Investors and Managers? Have you read Rick Adelman? Have you read Susie Orman? Have you read uh, Tony Robbins' book on money? Have you listened? Have you learn to invest? Do you have mentors who are financially sound? Because that's all within the complaining person's power to do. 
Nobody really lives in regimes that completely control you. Even strong communistic or uh, controlling governments, let's say China, people tunnel through the internet right past the Chinese government. Millions of Chinese people are doing that. It's hard to censor people now. So now we have these things. So next time you see somebody complaining, say, well, are you following the seven habits of highly effective people by Stephen Covey? He says, do what's in your power. Once you max all the things out that you could do, then you get a ticket. It's called the ticket to gripe and complain. I want to start printing those tickets and go, hey, I hear you whining a lot about externalities and uh, I wonder if you've earned the right to do that. People are like, what do you mean? You go, well, see this little piece of paper I have? It's Monopoly money, but it actually gives you the right to complain about the government. It gives you the right to complain about taxes. It gives you the right, <clears throat> do you want these? Well, how do I earn them? How do I get that Monopoly money? Well, you had to put in uh, 10,000 hours of work understanding finances. Deal? Once you got your 10,000 hours in, learning how to invest money, learning what not to invest in, learn to efficiently think like an investor, even if you're not an investor, I'm saying, once you got 10,000 hours in, you get this piece of paper. Then you can complain. See, that would shut up most of the people. That would shut us up. Maybe you, maybe me, when I get too much in my head and want to go down the easy route. Remember, going the easy route is a law of physics. Kip Thornton, the great physicist who worked with Stephen Hawking, summarized Einstein's law of time warps is everything moves to where it ages the most slowly. You could put that in even more layman's terms by saying everything wants to move to where it's the easiest. Water flows downhill, not uphill, for a reason. It's following Einstein's physics law of time warps. Now, I'm obviously oversimplifying that, but it's actually true. If you live on the first floor of a building, you're aging at a different rate more slowly than someone on the sixth floor. You know that? It might be microseconds difference, but you're still different because gravity pulls us down. Now, sometimes gravity pulls us to safety. In the case, if you're on a first floor, you're a little more safe if you jump out the window than if you're on the sixth floor. But sometimes gravity pulls us down into what's easy. Uh, it pulls us in that kind of inertia towards entropy. And entropy is another law which everything energetically at an energy level is basically diffusing. It's basically going into chaos. If you leave your house and come back in 50 years and nobody lives in it and touches, in it, touches it, it will have decayed. The roof, the paint, there'll be bugs going around, maybe be animal, raccoons living in it. It all tends towards decay. Your life, the reason you need the winter, spring, summer, fall, when it comes to uh, specifically what we're talking about today on this, in this holiday Christmas show, is about being a, a slave to the system financially, a slave to the lender. And the lender, by the way, people are confused. Do you know who owns credit card companies and banks? You're a lender like a bank only through the deposits of your customers. So when your brother or 
friend gets a loan from the bank, it might be your money that's being relent through the bank. That's why the bank can pay you interest on your savings, checking account, or CDs, or depository instruments because they're reloaning your money. So before you get too mad at the lender, remember you're the lender. So if you don't like the system, you have a choice. You could stop using banks, but that's a dangerous choice. You put all your money in the mattress, well, you can get robbed. You can have a fire. You know, Evil Knievel, the crazy uh, stunt guy, he kept all his money in a safe up, I think, in Montana. Uh, and he slept with a the, with the 357 Magnum gun, handgun. I don't recommend that way. There's a lot of bad things. And even if you think you can protect your own money and not worry about fire and all this, if you put your money in a mattress, money deflates. The economy is always spending your money through the process we call inflations, meaning uh, inflation, meaning the value of your money goes down. The money you put in cash in a mattress, depending on the country you live in, could deflate at a relatively rapid rate. So you're going to always have to put it in the bank so that it can be relent out and recirculated. You want money recirculating in the economy. This has been proven to generally be a positive thing. Now, what I was saying is because of that process, you can't be mad at the credit card company because you're the credit card company. So before you go out and occupy Wall Street, occupy your own brain. You know who owns Wall Street companies? You and I, if you own any stock in 401k, IRA, whatever it is you invest through, S&P, index funds, it's all you lending your money out and circulating. So what we don't need is a world where we rail against lenders. Now, let me just say as a caveat, there's unscrupulous lending practices and there's laws against it and sometimes people get caught and they go to jail and sometimes they don't get caught. What's that have to do with me and you? Now, if your life, let me say, there's a certain percentage of us that should become literal crusaders for justice. They are, you know, maybe you're the next Cesar Chavez. You're the next Martin Luther King. You're the next Malcolm X. You're the next Mahatma Gandhi or Nelson Mandela. And your destiny is to be an advocate against injustice. And so if that's you, then you can make your life passion to go and occupy Wall Street and to go in this and that. But, but don't get twisted up in your mind the real diagnosis. Occupy Wall Street, I'm sure, has many accurate things to it. But it's an extreme ideology, and generally extreme ideologies are inaccurate in the sum. They're broad. They might be accurate about this, this, and this, but they're rarely right about everything. Uh, and they're often grossly inaccurate in many important things. So going back to what I was saying about this debt, <clears throat> I want to offer you some new approaches. Why don't you lend money yourself? Even if you only have $100 in bank account. And I'm going to show you a cool way to do that. There's a charity out there. There's a few of them. Uh, the one I know best, I'm not affiliated. I'm not promoting them in any way uh, besides just word of mouth, is Kiva, K-I-V-A. It's a very interesting charity. 
uh, I've been watching them from or, or part of them since when they really first started. I someone told me about them and they're pretty cool. What they do is you donate to them. Uh, I think now it's a charity, like you can get a tax deduction depending on where you live. And they then lend out your money, I think no interest or very low interest, uh, to people in need who want to help themselves and their family and their community by starting a business but don't have any capital to do it. So that's a great place to start. If you can't join them sometimes, beat them. If debt is a nightmare for you, you become a lender and you do all the things that didn't happen to you and you watch what happens. There's things going on in the world. Like I said, I'm not superstitious. I'm not, but there's some unexplainable things. Some people call that karma. I don't know that I believe in karma like most people do. It's not straight line. It's not like everybody who does bad has a bad life and everybody who does good has a good life. I wish it was that way. There's You can read in ancient religious scripts many different ones where it says the big question everyone has for God is why do people who do good things have so much bad happen to them and people who do bad have so many good things happen to them. So there's not straight line karma. But I do believe there's general inner workings of life that I don't get. Um, but when I do them, I don't get the reason, but when I do them, it seems to, I think it could be very practical reasons. If you start becoming a lender, what are you going to learn? Well, you're going to learn how to read people and be discerning with money because the second you lend out a hundred bucks. Now remember when I say be a lender, don't lend out more than you can afford to lose. A principle number uno. Every time you lend money, there is a good chance you ain't getting it back. It's like Vegas. So when you go to Vegas, my friend says, uh, Callen, Colin Cowherd, this radio sports announcer says, only bet your beer money, meaning bet money or uh, not afraid to lose. So everybody has $10 you can bet. Bet on your kids or bet on your uncle. Parents say, hey, I'm going to give you 10 bucks. I want you to go open a lemonade stand and you give me back my 10 bucks plus $1. Nothing wrong with that. I opened a lemonade stand when I was five or six. So it's going to teach you how to read people. So even if you lose your money, I'm going to tell you this. You know, uh, Malco, that's the famous, uh, or Mankin, I think his name is, the famous economist. He wrote the one of the most well-known textbooks. I'm reading it right now. Manku, I think, M-A-N-K-I-W. Great book, by the way. Textbook, if you want to understand money. He says, you know, economics is just people respond to incentives. That's it. The rest of the textbook is just commentary. People respond to incentives. So your brain will respond to incentives. When you give out $10 and you want it back, people ask me how to read people. I've developed my own personality typing system called PACE, P-A-S-E. And I use other ones like Meyer Briggs and all these disk tests and Strength Finder and all that. But you want to know how to get good at reading people? Lend out money and lose, ten, lose your 100 bucks. And you'll, your brain will respond to that reward by tuning your brain to read people faster the next time. Number two, you'll learn how to structure win-win negotiations and deals. Most people are in a win-lose scenario mentality. It's always, I win, someone loses, or they win and I lose. But if you're a lender and someone can't pay you back, you, you learn to negotiate. Okay, you can't pay me back. You know, I, I lent you a thousand bucks. You can't 
pay me back. Well, why don't you pay me back 50 bucks a month over this? Like you learn, you're responding to incentives. I want my money back. You'll learn how to negotiate. That's a powerful tool. You'll learn how to do the legal stuff of drawing up a promissory note. And in doing so, and reading a contract one time, because you wrote it because you're responding to the incentive, hey, I want to write a good contract so I get my money back. Guess what? Next time somebody loans you money, you'll know how to read the contract. You see what happened in 2008 in the U.S. housing bubble crisis, and which led to a recession of epic proportions. Nobody knew how to read their documents. It was, it, this is, I'm, there were some unscrupulous lenders that had documents that didn't state it, but the vast majority of loans that people went broke uh, signing were loans that were clearly stated. This interest rate is what's called an arm, an adjustable rate that it can go up with various, uh, you know, usually follows an index. It can go up with this index or this index. And people didn't know that because they had never lent out money. They had been like the dog and resigned themselves to, oh, I know nothing about money. Oh, I meet people, I can't do math. I was bad at math. Richard Branson was dyslexic. He dropped out of high school and said, once he started his magazine business, he said, you know what? I either am going to get good at math and be a billionaire or rich, or I'm going to resign myself to my dyslexia and be poor. And he rose above it. Let me just tell you this. If Helen Keller can get a, a sickness, a high fever at 18 months old and then go from being born a normal baby to be born to move into absolute darkness from being blind, absolute, uh, you know, locked in from being deaf, blind, deaf, and in a way, you know, that makes you mute because you can't talk if you've never heard. Or And then she rises to become an author and somebody who's remembered throughout the ages, you can overcome your ADD or your dislike of books or your dislike of math. It's all what Peter Drucker calls disempowering beliefs. You just disempower, oh, I'm, I'm dyslexic. So Now, I don't mean to disparage and to denigrate a handicap you might have because life deals hard blows to some people. Uh, Helen Keller was dealt a hard blow that you and I probably weren't dealt with. And I wouldn't want to be like, wow, I'll just get over it. Because no, it's not easy to get over. But yet, as Freud said, the years of struggle will look be looked back at as the most beautiful. It's beautiful what people do. So it's beautiful what Richard Branson did overcoming that. When most people just go, I'm not a numbers person. Never been, Ty. Well, okay then you resigned yourself to be a broke person. Because I have rich friends and I have poor friends. And every one of the rich friends is kind of good with numbers, but not naturally. They made themselves good with numbers. So one of the benefits of you lending out a little money here and there is you go from the disempowered dog that lays down in the box to knowing how to read a promissory note. You'll also go online and you can learn how to do a mortgage amortization schedule. You don't even have to do them now. You used to have to do them with calculators. Now you just go to a website. Okay, I'm loaning this person ten, you know, $1,000 and I want them to pay me back over five years at 5% interest. You put it all in the calculator and it tells you the monthly payment of principal and interest you should make. That'll make you more sophisticated. You want to go up in the world? I talk about this. Some of you are in, uh, you know, this is a free talk I give, but 
uh, if you're not in the VIP program that I do, it costs some money every month. But again, good things cost money. You get what you pay for. You know, I hope that this free stuff that I do has a tremendous value, but I can give more value in the paid stuff. So I was talking yesterday in the paid program where I really have, you know, hours to devote and it's more of a set thing and people, you move from here to there. You need that routine. It's like you can't just work out in the gym. You know, self-learning is kind of like most people in the gym. You get excited about it. You go, you do your membership and you're, okay, I'm signing my contract for one year. Of course, that usually puts you in debt, but whatever. You know, you sign it, you get toured around the gym, you're excited. You, you, you're self-learning. I'm using my willpower and I'm going to the gym. Woo! And the average person I read goes to the gym once. Being in the gym business, you make a lot of money because your equipment doesn't get used very much because 90% of the people that are on the monthly self-help come to the gym when you want program never come. It's only 10% of hardcore users. I don't know if it's exactly 10, but you get the point. So self-learning has no routine. When you get a personal trainer or you get a bunch of friends that say, we're going to show up at your house every morning. We're going to go jogging together. We're going to hit the weights together. And then you do it in a routine. You don't just, you know, you see people in the gym. They're like, oh, I'm going to do that. You see people doing, I saw a funny <laughs> video where showing people like who use the machines wrong. So it's like, you're supposed to put your legs on it. People have their arms under the leg curl machines and all this. That's self-learning. And I hope you do some self-learning, but just understand the real growth, the Arnold Schwarzenegger muscles, the Jillian Michaels, you know, toned and fit body doesn't come from people just signing up. It comes from a commitment to something and a routine and a quote unquote curriculum. Okay, we're going to do this exercise on Monday and this one on Tuesday and then we're going to take a rest on Wednesday and die. That gets you what you want. So for those of you in the VIP program, that's what you're getting. And I charge less than the average person spends on coffee per month. If that's too much money for you, you are in a scarcity mentality. I'm telling you. Scarcity mentality. I'm on this big experiment now of really testing the boundaries of scarcity versus prosperity. So one of the things you can try with me if you want to try experiment, try giving away a lot of money to charity as an experiment to the point where maybe you feel like you're going to be broke and not able to pay rent. Just try it. Uh, I don't know the outcome for you. I don't know. I'm in the, I, I always like to experiment, but try it long enough. Don't run it for one time. Give it a little time, you know, give it 67 days or give it an 18 month trial. Try it. Try lending out a little bit of money. That's a prosperity mentality. You're lending out, knowing you might lose it, but knowing that even if you lose the dollars, if you do it right, what other principles? I talked about three or four. Number five, you'll learn how to deal with conflict. People who aren't going to pay you back. Not only will you learn to deal with the conflict of people, uh, people to people, so you going, hey, you owe me my money. And they're like, no, I can't give it back and you may be having a little conflict, say, well, you know, maybe compromise, well, what about this, da, da, da. But you're gonna learn how to deal with the conflict in your own brain of how do I cope with, quote unquote, making a mistake with that person that I gave money for. That's a skill to learn 
that conflict uh, with yourself. And when you lend out a little bit of money, you will not only become better at conflict with yourself, with others, but with yourself. And I think in general, the reason, remember I said the way that life, you have the winter, spring, summer, fall, the spring is a series of massive experimentation. Nobody does this phase right. This was not taught to you in school, which is a tragedy of epic proportions because the reasons modern science and research, research and schools even exist is what? They exist because of the scientific method, which is seven steps. Ask a question, do the research on it, form a hypothesis, test, observe, analyze, submit to peer review, and off and round and round you go. So what happens here is the reason people can't deal with conflict, either in a negotiation financial setting or with themselves in their own brain, because I, I put a little post on my Twitter. I said, uh, let me read it. It said, and a lot of people you know, retweeted it and quoted it because we can all um, understand. If you find yourself looping a negative thought over and over, what's the solution? I said, stop and realize that life is abundant. There are many fish in the sea of life. The main reason people can't cope with failure, i.e. conflict, is scarcity mentality. So let's say you loan out $100 or $1,000 or $1 million to somebody. The main reason you won't do it again if you don't get the money back, let's say that it fails, quote unquote, then you'll start looping. A lot of you can think of relationships where this happened. You dated someone or befriended someone or went into business with somebody and it's like, oh, you're looping, looping. Oh man, why did I do it? Why did I do it? What did I do? It's because you come from a scarcity mentality. I won't be able to find. I was reading this book, uh, Attached by Heller and Levine, two researchers, which said, you know why people loop when they break up? in a relationship, in a romantic relationship, the one of the most common ones, there's three types of people they said. There's secure, anxious, and, uh, and uh, I forget the third one. I'll remember in a second. The third, uh, detached, is it's not the word. Avoidant, there's the word. So they said if you're uh, uh, anxious, people who are jealous and who loop a lot, you'll often, the it's because you have an overactive um, engaging and disengaging or activation system in your brain. So some of it's normal, you're not gonna change it. But what your brain does and why you loop uh, is because you imagine, your mind plays tricks on you that there's no more fish in the sea. Oh, I lent out a thousand bucks and I'll never get a thousand bucks back. And uh, Lend out a thousand? I have a, a friend, he, lend, he invests with an abundant mentality. So he'll give 100 to 250 grand to lots of businesses. 99% of them go broke and he never gets his money. But this guy's smarter and he's rich and he's young and he started from nothing because he doesn't loop as much. What he does is goes, there's more fish in the sea. I have more investments. And he, and he hit one investment that pays him, you know, whatever. Million bucks a month. How's that? You lose all your deals. You lose... Million bucks lending it out. This is what venture capital do. Capitalists do up in Silicon Valley. They come from an abundant mentality. They're not like, ah, my one investment. 
Most people will stop. The average person in in the world, after, uh, I read uh, something around this. Seventy percent of people quit after one quote unquote unexpected event, i.e., failure. By the second one, like ninety percent or eighty percent of people have quit, and by the third one, you you're left with a very sliver of the human population left continually trying something. But yet, how many people are rich in real dollar terms in the world? A teeny sliver. See, it's not coincidental that the sliver at the top is also the same size as the sliver who doesn't who don't loop because they're abundant. Donald Trump, I love his story, 9.2 billion dollars in debt. He made a lot of money in the 80s, he said, I came out of, my dad, you know, he comes from a family of real, real estate moguls. Uh, he then went to Wharton. He then came out of Wharton. He was, a, he was winning. He was winning. He grew up in a winning family. He went to Wharton. He was winning. He came out. He started doing real estate deals in, I think, the 70s and 80s, making every deal he touched went to gold. And then, of course, he got, you know, a little... He forgot about winter, spring, summer, and fall. He, he was always in the fall. He forgot winter comes, and winter did come. I think it was the late 80s, early 90s. Some recessions happened. Some banks called his loans, started getting banks saying, where's our money? We want it back now. We want to recall our loans. And he went $9.2 billion in debt. Let me just reiterate what that number is. He was 92. $9,000 million in debt. $9,000 million. You might say, well, maybe it was just real estate loans. He didn't have to pay it back. No, he had personally guaranteed $1 billion. So $1,000 million was his personal loan, and his other properties were leveraged another $8.2 billion. How'd you like that? He said, I walked down the street past a homeless man, and realized that homeless man was $9.2 billion richer than me, Mr. Donald Trump. But the good thing about the story is, did he loop over it? No. Most people would resign themselves like the dog. They'll go in the box, like Martin Seligman talks about. Confirmed desperation, Pavlovian response. They'll begin to blame, oh, it was the economy, it was this, it was that. Oh, it's the tax, it's the tax rate. The tax rate is why I'm poor. It's the Democrats. It's, I'm sure it's the conservatives. It's Obama. That's why I'm poor. No, but Donald Trump didn't do any of that. Now, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying consider an alternative. Donald Trump said, pull his sleeves back, and then double down on what worked before. He said, I had gotten distracted. He said, I was going around the world chasing models and women and not keeping my eye on the business. And he said, I learned, don't do that. And he put his eye back on the business. And now he was $9,000 million. Imagine that. Waking up, your bank account says negative $9,000 million. You know what most people do? I'll tell you. I lived, I had a place in Miami in the year 2008. I lived there part time. My lawyer, Liam, I, I was talking to him, <coughs> a Lior, sorry. And uh, he said, yeah, I'm dealing with a lot of clients that are jumping out windows committing suicide. So what happened? He said, man, they went into debt. 
Miami was overbuilt, about 50,000 units, I think he said, overbuilt, meaning there's 50,000 more places than there are people. And he said, I've got clients, my law clients or friends of friends, they're jumping out windows. I said, how much are they in debt? Oh, half a million bucks, a million bucks. And you know what? That's looping to the extreme. That's what suicide is because you're sure, because you come from a scarcity mentality, that there's no abundance there to fix it. Donald Trump had more courage. 9,000 million. His bank account said negative. Now, it didn't literally, but figuratively. 9,000 million. You know how many zeros that is? Most people at a million dollars in debt would just give up and be like the dog in the box. But I like Donald Trump. I mean, I, I'm sure he has flaws. Whenever I say I like somebody, it's hilarious. People come out of the woodwork. It's like uh, the comedian Brian... Uh, Brian uh, Regan says, people paratroop in with their, well, Arnold Schwarzenegger didn't do everything right. I'm like, what are you talking? That's what I feel like doing. Did I say I found a saint in Donald Trump or Arnold Schwarzenegger? There's people who write negative things about Mother Teresa. I don't care. Keep your paratrooping to yourself. You can drop in on some low IQ people who will want to listen to your babbling. I'm not talking about you. I'm just saying, whoever is like that, I hate it. I'm like, you're a moron. That's what you just told me. If you paratroop in and tell me how Donald Trump's not perfect, somebody did this about Sam Walton. Paratroop in on the cool story of Sam Walton was how he built this thing from nothing. I didn't say he built the right thing. If I talk about Alexander the Great, I'm not advocating martial uh, conquering of nations. I'm like, I want to look at people and go, you ain't going nowhere in life with a brain like that, my friend. The point of when I talk about Alexander the Great is what are the principles that were effective in his goal? Then I'm not going to have the same goal as him. So my goal is not to pillage the world but I like to know the guerrilla techniques he used. It's the underpinning of things like guerrilla marketing that you can use. It's the underpinning of winning as an underdog. So please stop the paratrooping in about humans' flaws. It's literally like somebody came to me and, and would be like, I'm like, I like swimming in the pool. And they're like, but, but the pool's wet, Ty. Did you realize that? I know the pool's wet. Pools are wet. That's why we call them pools. Water. In the same way, when I talk about humans, as you bring up flaws and mistakes in them, I'm like, that is what humans are. And in the flaws and mistakes, as I swim in them, I see the principles that I would like to follow both to do and to not do. So reading Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'm no in no way deterred by reading Arnold Schwarzenegger by the fact that he may have had a scandal later in life. Who cares? Going back to this Christmas theme, as Jesus Christ said, I think it's the, maybe one of the great stories in the Bible. The Jesus walked up to a crowd that was holding stones and they were getting ready to throw stones. Horrible way to die and kill a woman. And the Jesus said to the crowd, what are you doing? And they said, we caught this woman, or this woman is an adulterer. And we know she is because we caught her in the very act. We saw with our eyes she was cheating on her husband. And back then, 
According to the Abrahamic law, you could stone an adulterer. Now, they were now seizing an opportunity because in the story they hated Jesus. So they said to Jesus, well, what do you say we should do? They're always trying to catch Jesus in these stories, like in the, the gold coin story of the rendering to Caesar what Caesar and God to God. So they said, what do you think we should do, Mr. Jesus? And Jesus gave the greatest answer you could give, a Solomonic answer, a wise answer. He said, well, I think whoever here is without sin and error and mistakes in their life, you're allowed to throw the, you're the first one to throw the stone. Who's ready to throw? And you know what everybody did? They put the stone down because everybody has it. So the point being, when I read Donald Trump, I do not care about his hair and various frivolous things that most people want to fixate on. Just not to go off on a diatribe, but the reason people fixate is it comes from a position of desperation and scarcity. See, people in a position of desperation and scarcity, they can't, they are no longer able to say, well, Donald Trump and Arnold Schwarzenegger just did what I could have done, but they did it better. See, when you're abundant, that's why with people with high self-esteem can give out compliments because they have so much in themselves that they admire their high self-esteem. Hopefully it's not delusional, but assuming it's healthy high self-esteem, they can dole out these things because they feel good about themselves. But people who constantly paratroop in, they're in a position of scarcity. They have nothing to give themselves because their brain accurately assesses that they're not worth complimenting and so they have nothing to give. You don't be that person. We've been talking today about financial prosperity. We've been talking about a little bit uh, about debt. I didn't totally make this a financial conversation. I do more of the finance stuff in the business school that I have, the online one. You can access on your phone. If you want to know more about that, you can go on my website. Uh, it's amazing the changes. People who never started a business or people who work for somebody else, people who are entrepreneurs just seeing revolution uh, in their bank account, literal, practical, money changing. Um, but for those of you who are in the winter, you're in huge amounts of debt, try the little practical thing. Lend out a little bit of money. But do it attentively, do it wisely, do it knowing you might lose that money, so don't do too much. Those of you who are more abundant and have a lot of money, experiment, it's all an experiment. Just try to give out money, what happens? Maybe you'll find you don't want to be a lender. Great, now you can cross it off the list of life. But maybe you'll find, wow, I can have a lot of positive effect both for myself financially and for the world at large by being someone who distributes capital. The world needs people who distribute cap capital ethically and wisely. Never forget that. Just like the world needs people who crusade for charities and rights of man and women and the rights of the poor and, un uh, un and injustice or fights injustice. The world needs people who distribute financial capital. That might be you. You might say, I'm not a numbers person. Become a numbers person. It ain't that hard. Get a little calculator. Do one math exercise a day for the next month. Just go, what's 17 times 18? At first, it's going to seem impossible. But eventually, like 
doing push-ups or doing pull-ups or jogging a marathon or being born blind and deaf and learning to read or write or being born dyslexic like Branson and learning to read and write, it becomes easy. Okay? So, for the holidays, make it a holiday where you're not like the masses, where you're investing in 10x investments, where you're buying and spending, not consumer RRD uh, spending that benefits other people, but you are spending on things that could return you 10 times what you spent over 10 months. I'm oh, sorry, over 10 years or shorter. So, if you're listening, replay or wherever you're listening and there's a comment box or you can leave a, a review leave me a review that answers this question what's the biggest area in your life you've been a victim financially whether it be dead or otherwise and number two what's the biggest thing you learned from our conversation today that you're going to implement as an experiment to try to change move forward evolve go up the chain and not let entropy drag you down. So answer those two questions. If you have more, reach out at, at Ty Lopez. Have a great holiday. Uh, hopefully your holiday is a period of, of uh, harvest, fall, the fall in, of your life. But if it's not, who cares? Just always remember, holiday is just a calendar day. And calendars aren't real. They're illusions and man-made. Focus on the things that are not man-made. Focus on the things that are part of nature, universe, or God. Focus on those, because those things are immutable, unchangeable, and must be conformed to. You don't have to celebrate a holiday. If you feel lonely and depressed around your holiday, do not celebrate it. Who cares? Move on. The Aztecs didn't celebrate Christmas, or even December. They lived fine lives. So did the Sioux Indians. So did the Hadzas in Tanzania. So did the Aceh in Paraguay. You don't need this. But there's no reason to discount it. You can make up man-made days and celebrate them too. Don't be driven by insignificant, unimportant things. You focus and fixate your mind on the things that are urgent. Fixing health, wealth, love, and happiness, that's urgent. Holidays aren't. Hopefully you'll have a good holiday. Those of you who aren't, who cares? Life will be good. Get through the winter. Get to the spring. Keep moving through the cycles over and over. Be patient and uh, talk to you soon.